Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes. Brian, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. I'm I'm very happy to be here. Okay, so as I mentioned in the introduction, the book's called Blue Water War, Maritime Struggle in the Mediterranean and Middle East, 1940 to 1945. Okay, so that's a that's a title that kind of caught my attention here because it's not something I'm I'm not a military expert, not a history. I'm not an expert in anything. Let's just say that. Not an expert in anything, but I don't really see a lot of talk when I think of the World War II era around these two spots. I'm sure I'm missing a bunch. What have I missed? Well, actually, um, I, I think uh, your, your, your observation is, is fairly realistic uh, because I've gotten that feedback from a lot of people that they really don't, haven't paid much attention to the uh, fighting that took place in the Mediterranean theater, although there was substantial fighting that took place there. Uh, this campaign went on for five years. It was really divided into two major sub-campaigns. Uh, one was the fighting that takes place in Africa, which predominantly takes place in uh, North Africa, but there's also an East Africa component to that. And that lasted basically for three years from June uh, 1940 through May 1943. And then the campaign immediately moves further north. And the last two years is fought in, in uh, Southern Europe predominantly in the uh, Italian peninsula, but also there were subsequent campaigns in southern France and Greece. And by the end of this, the Allies have complete control over all of uh, southern Europe or or, or the vast majority of southern Europe. And, uh, of course, all of this is predicated on this this fighting that takes place in the waters, uh, you know, around around these two areas, um, which... uh, is the driving factor that allows this entire these these two competing campaigns to take place. Okay, so I have a map of the Mediterranean up on my screen to the right. And when you think about World War II epic ship battles, you think about big blue ocean, lots of places to go. I mean, when you're in the Mediterranean, you're you're basically cut off. There's nowhere to run to. Um, how? how what, were, what was different about these battles? Does that change the strategy, the type of ships, planes, et cetera, that you could use? Well, sure, absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Mediterranean is it, it makes up less than 1% of the, the world's ocean uh, sea area. And it is basically, a, you know, extensively a landlocked sea. There's only two entrance points into the Mediterranean uh, from the, the greater world's oceans. One of these is a natural uh, entrance point, which is through the Strait of Gibraltar, which is only eight miles across at its narrowest point. And then the other was man-made via the uh, Suez Canal. Um, and uh, that uh, connected, of course, the Mediterranean to eventually the Indian Ocean. Um, so it, it is a relatively small battle zone compared to you know, other major uh, um, maritime theaters during World War II, like the Atlantic, or, or more specifically the Pacific, um, and, and another thing that's true about this conflict, which uh, isn't necessarily true in some of the other conflicts, is you're always relatively close to um, the shore and, and, and land area. Um, so you're, you're operating oftentimes generally within range of shore-based aircraft uh, when you're in this region. Um, and, and that's, of course, going to be a major driving factor in the fighting that will take place there. 
um, you know, as we probably get into this, one of the things that will, will be, become a dynamic is, of course, originally the fighting starts out uh, with the, uh, the, the, the Italian Navy opposing, you know, the, the British Mediterranean fleet within the Mediterranean. Um, and then very quickly, in about uh, seven months, uh, the Germans will come into the conflict and uh, really kind of take it over. And to a very large extent, the Germans do this with their Luftwaffe, their, their Air Force. And the Luftwaffe, in fact, will become the Royal Navy's greatest antagonist uh, within the Mediterranean for, for most of this conflict then, as opposed to uh, the, the Italian Navy or even, you know, ger- German naval elements that will, will wage uh, uh, warfare uh, within the theater. So in, in that way, it's somewhat different. Now, you still have some, some, some major fleet battles and things like that that occur within the area. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not to the same scale uh, of what you have, say, in the Pacific. Okay, so before the first shot is fired, set the scene for us. There's two entry points, as you mentioned, two entry, two exit points. Uh, Italy is sticking right out in the middle of this, obviously, on the southern borders, northern Africa. Um, so what is the, the map, if you will, before the first? Who's, who's inside of this, this war zone, potential, this soon-to-be war zone? Sure. Well, again, I'll step back just a little further and and then we'll get to this. Uh, Obviously, the war starts in September 1939 uh, when when, when Britain and France go to war with Germany in response to Germany's invasion of Poland. Now, at the time, this this war is focused on Northwest Europe. Um, And, you know, the the, the British entered this conflict kind of reluctantly, um, as did, I'm sure the French did, too. But they feel like they really have no choice because they, uh, they, they tried the appeasement route and they realize that, uh, you know, Germany just keeps gobbling up territory. And they made some uh, uh, defense guarantees to Poland. And they feel like this is the only way we have to confront the Germans uh, to, to stop this, this territorial expansion that they're, they're undergoing. Um, but at the time, when, when Britain goes to war with Germany in September 1939, they have like three bulk works in order to protect their, their situation. Number one. They have a geography in the fact that you have this buffer of the uh, Netherlands, uh, 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 Belgium, and, and France in between it and Germany. Number two, they, they, they go into the war with the idea that they're part of an alliance, and they have the, the French, and the French army is, is, is arguably the strongest army in Europe at the time. And then third, they have the Royal Navy, which is the largest navy in the world, with the United States a, a, a close second. And uh, give you an idea, the Royal Navy is you know, four times larger than what the German Navy is. So they have these these things in place. Now you advance about nine months uh, into the conflict, and these bulk works have largely disintegrated because the Germans have launched their blitzkrieg campaign against the West, and um, uh, the you know at the time um, uh, the Netherlands and Belgium have already collapsed. France is in the process of collapsing. Of course, when France leaves the war, it takes its army with it. And the Royal Navy suffered some heavy losses in the process of, of the various evacuation operations, such around Dunkirk and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the situation as it exists in, in, a, in a, a, a strategic sense when, when the conflict starts in the Mediterranean. Now, what you have going on in the Mediterranean itself is, you know, Italy is aligned with Germany, but at the start of the war, they don't actually get involved. Um, but the Italians... Uh, believe and of course Italy, like you, you indicated, is located in the central Mediterranean. Um, now the the Italians believe and, and and Mussolini believes that the Mediterranean is rightfully an Italian lake, and they they want they're looking for expansion. Um, but by this time, of course, the British and the French 
you know, own substantial, you know, directly or indirectly control substantial portions of Africa and the Middle East. Uh, the British control both choke points into the Mediterranean via Gibraltar and, and the Red Sea uh, and the uh, Suez Canal. And the Italians want to be able to have expansion of their own and particularly be able to uh, gain access to the world's greater oceans and be able to control, you know, these choke points into the Mediterranean. And they believe now that, you know, France is in the process of collapsing and, uh, you know, Britain is probably going to follow suit very soon because everybody kind of assumes that Britain will come to some type of accommodated peace with, with Germany. And they think the time is right now to strike. And so they declare, Italy declares war against France and Germany in, on, on uh, June 10th, 1940. And that is what brings conflict into the Mediterranean region is the, the, the fact that the Italians declare war on the allies. Now, this isn't something that Britain necessarily wants. It doesn't come for a good time for them uh, because, again, they've got this situation going on in Northwest Europe, which is their primary concern. And at the beginning of this conflict, the British are heavily outnumbered in the, in the Mediterranean region. Now, it's certainly true that the British Royal Navy was larger than the Italian Navy overall. But again, the British Royal Navy has responsibilities globally, including, again, the defense of the United Kingdom and the maintenance of, of absolutely essential maritime lines of communication in the Atlantic. Uh, so the point is, is that the Italians can put their entire Navy, naval effort into this conflict in the Mediterranean where the British can't. And at the beginning of this conflict, the Italians have 271 principal warships that are either on hand or about to enter service compared to 41 uh, warships that the British have in the British Mediterranean fleet. So the British are outnumbered by a factor of about six to one at the start of this conflict. And they are primarily located that their, their center of power is Egypt. And uh, at the time, what was called Palestine in, the, in that area, that's kind of the center of British power. And of course, they also control Gibraltar. Um, the, the situation with ground forces is pretty much the same. The, the, the Italian army is nominally about 1.6 million men, of which about 540,000 are located in Africa. The British have 83,000 men in Africa so and the Middle East area. So again, they're outnumbered by a factor of about six to one. And the air situation, the Italians have about 1,700 aircraft altogether, of which 650 or so are located in the Mediterranean and contested areas. And the British have about 360 aircraft. So in terms of uh, aircraft that are directly available, they're outnumbered by about factor about two to one. But when you look at the theater altogether, it's again, it's about a five to one advantage for the Italians. So that's kind of the strategic situation that you have with the Italians controlling the central Mediterranean and the British controlling the fringes, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean out of Alexandria and Egypt, and then the Western Mediterranean out of Gibraltar and the Italians initially appearing to be in the driver's seat because they have this numerical advantage and, it, and and the British start the conflict on the defensive. Okay. That's helpful. So let's talk about the, the entry, uh, the entry points, um, the Suez canal, obviously last year, two, I guess two years ago now made headlines for those who don't follow the Suez canal. When the, when the ship got stuck there, you can see just how small it is relative to what you would think. Yep. Um, Gibraltar, if you're not familiar with it, I think you said eight miles across roughly. Okay. So when we say control, what does that mean practically? Is that is that only ships right there guarding? Is it is it is it troops? Because you could, I guess, theoretically, Suez Canal, you could, I guess, you could mount uh, weapons on the bank and fire at ships. What does it mean to control these ingress and egress ports? Well, I think it's you know, it, again, you're you're talking sea lanes um, and, and 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 ocean ways. So, I mean, 
The only thing that's going to preclude, preclude the Italians from sailing their ships into the Eastern Mediterranean is being challenged by, you know, the Mediterranean fleet in the area. And vice versa, if the British are going to send ships into the Central Mediterranean, you know, they're going to potentially be challenged uh, by, by the, the Italians in those regions. So that, that, that's certainly not to say that, you know, the two sides can't operate in the other's territory. It's just that the, 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 I guess what I'm saying is the British, the Italian power base is in the Central Mediterranean, mm-hmm. right. whereas the British power bases are on the, on the fringes, again, out of Gibraltar in the West. And at the time, at the start of the conflict, they really have no forces in Gibraltar because, again, the, the, the French had been kind of tasked to uh, basically defend the Western Mediterranean. But France basically leaves the war uh, with uh, 10 days after the, uh, uh, I, I believe it was the 21st or 22nd of June when France officially leaves the war. So they become really no factors. The British basically have to pick up the slack that the French, you know, ha- had have left them. And they will dispatch forces to occupy. Uh, Gibraltar, what becomes known as Force K. Uh, and then, of course, they have the Mediterranean fleet, which is located in Alexandria. So these are the two British power bases when it comes to the naval war. Now, one other thing I'll, I'll point out, though, is, as, since you brought up the Suez Canal, um, is you know a key factor in this, and I don't know, maybe we're going to get to this anyway, but a key factor in all of the maritime conflict that's going to take place in support of the, these operations in this area is going to be the logistical struggle. And for the British, um, because Italy is located in the central Mediterranean, they realize it's impractical to sail convoys through the central Mediterranean in order to support their forces in the Middle East. The only alternative route for them is they have to circumnavigate the entire continent of Africa and then bring the convoys in through the Suez Canal. Um, and that's what they have to do. And now this adds about 8,500 miles onto uh, the journey of their, their merchant ships. The total distance from the United Kingdom to Egypt is about 11,600 miles. So they're maintaining supply lines that literally stretch, you know, halfway, you know, across the world in terms of, of the total distance. And other than maybe the United States, Britain is the only country uh, during World War II that could have possibly pulled something like this off, because this is a tremendous maritime undertaking. But the British, you know, have they have the largest merchant fleet in the world at the time with about 20 million tons of merchant shipping. They have the Royal Navy, which, as I said, you know, is the, the largest navy in the world with the United States, a very close second. And they have an, a global imp, you know, empire and, and infrastructure in place that will allow them to do this. So th- even though this is a long and arduous task, this is something they can they, they can fulfill. Um, the, the, one of the potential problems to this, though, is the fact that, again, as you're, you're entering the Red Sea and then which ultimately will en- enter into the Suez Canal, um, that's a classic choke point. And guess what's located right there? Italian East Africa. And uh, the Italians control colonies there in Eritrea, uh, Ethiopia, and Italian Somaliland. And they have a naval base there at, at Masawa in, in Eritrea, which has a squadron there. And if the Italian, and, and plus the Italians also have about uh, 325 aircraft in East Africa. So if the Italians are able to effectively utilize these forces in East Africa, they have the potential to, to shut down or seriously impede this maritime traffic that's coming in there. And uh, fortunately, uh, the British are able to neutralize this Italian threat relatively easily and then eliminate it altogether with the conquest of Italian East Africa in 1941. But this whole thing, as you mentioned, the Suez Canal will be absolutely critical to the British effort to supply their forces in the Middle East. And without this, they really, that that, that whole five-year campaign that we discussed wouldn't have happened or it would have been something completely different uh, than, than what actually transpires. 
Well, the reason I was asking the question was just thinking through it, thinking, well, if you're the Italians and you can control these two, the canal and uh, Gibraltar, uh, then you can really, I mean, you, you have a lot of stroke because as we know, there's fighting in Northern Africa. Um, as you mentioned, all these supply lines that they have to go all the way around. If you can cut that off. So um, that's why I was curious about how it was viewed, because if I was, it would seem that, 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 that from the Italian standpoint, this would be like priority number one. You, you would think that. And I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, I've had discussions with different people and I had a discussion with one person. He said, well, he thinks the British should have just ignored the Italians and just focused the entire war effort on the Germans. And I said, well, well how do you do that, though? Because the, the Italians declared war on you. And, and what are you willing to give up? Uh, but there were two key strategic assets within the Middle East the British absolutely wanted to defend. One of these was the Suez Canal, uh, which not only was this necessary for the defense of their forces in the Middle East, but ideally, eventually, the British wanted to open up the uh, the, uh, the Mediterranean area. Uh, they realized at the beginning of the war they can't do that, but eventually they'll want to do this because, again, the Mediterranean is a key transportation artery between the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. And you can't do that if you don't control the Suez Canal. And then the other one is the Persian Gulf oil fields, uh, which, uh, again, you know, is a very important asset to the Allies. But even more important than that, it, it would have been a great boon to the access if they'd been able to, to seize this oil. Because one of the things, of course, that impedes access operations uh, more or less you know, across the world is, is uh, less access to oil. And if they would have been able to actually capture those oil fields and had a means to transport these back to Europe, um, this would have been a great boon to them. So the Allies want to uh, uh, preclude the, uh, the, the Italians from seizing this territory. Now, the Italians declare the war, and they're the ones, one of the things about the Italians is they initially have the uh, numerical advantages like I talked about, but a second thing about the Italians is, is that it, Italy is not set up to fight a, 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 a protracted war. Uh, they don't have the industrial base to support this. They don't have the oil to support this. They have about 1.6 million tons of oil in their fuel stocks to, to fuel their Navy. That should last them several months, but then once that's depleted, you know, they're getting their oil basically from Romania, and uh, they are not in a position to be able to, you know, sustain long-term protracted combat operations. So you would think that given the fact that they have this numerical advantage and that, um, you know, again, they're not in a position to, to be successful in a protracted war, that they're going to move very aggressively, very quickly, but they don't. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, it's it, I, I, you know, it borders upon military malpractice to the extent that the Italians don't move more aggressively than what they, they, they do. Um, but um, I think you have to understand the mindset of what the Italians were is they don't, they really have no strategy to beat the British. I think their strategy is, is they think the Germans are going to beat the British and they just want to be in on the kill. Um, and, and as a result of this, they don't really take any serious efforts. I mean, they, they will eventually take some offensive efforts, but they don't act nearly as aggressively as you think they might have. Um, to take advantage of these uh, uh, the, the miracle uh, benefit that they have. And as a result of this, they really let an opportunity pass by them. Okay, so you, you broke down the numbers for us earlier, but give us a practical comparison, um, ship to ship, plane to plane, pilot to pilot. What was that like? Sure. Had sure. There? Well, you raise a good point because, of course, you're just looking at raw numbers, and raw numbers only tell part of the story. There is definitely, you know, qualitative issues that were also associated with, uh, you know, both of the forces and structural issues that will uh, impact both. 
Um, and I can give you an exact breakdown of, of the size of the, the various navies at the beginning of the war. And again, I'm, I'm just looking at the, at the forces that were generally available in the Mediterranean. Uh, for the Italians, they had six battleships, one old armored cruiser, seven heavy, seven heavy cruisers, 12 light cruisers, 61 destroyers, 69 torpedo boats. And when I say torpedo boats here, I'm not talking about PT boats. I'm talking about basically a, a small destroyer. Uh, and 115 submarines. They, at the time, the Italians had more submarines than the Germans did. By comparison, the British Mediterranean fleet has four battleships, one aircraft carrier, nine light cruisers, 21 destroyers, and six submarines. All right. So those are the forces immediately at hand. Um, the, the Italians outnumber the British in every warship category, with the exception of aircraft carriers. Uh, the Italians don't have any aircraft carriers. Um, it, as far but as could, but they could launch from their bases, but they can launch. Yes, exactly. And that's part of the idea is they don't really feel like they need to have the aircraft carriers because, you know, um, most of where you're going to be operating is, is going to be within range of, of ground based airfields. Um, so uh, as far as the quality of, of the, uh, the the forces that were involved, there are a number of factors to consider there. Uh, Italian the Italian warships tended to be good ships in terms of their basic design. Uh, they tended to, to be, you know, a lot of their ships were fast. A lot of their ships were more modern, in fact, than the British ships were. Um, so basic design, they were good stout warships. Uh, what the Italians lacked in was some of the higher level technologies like radar, sonar, those type of things, uh, range finding. Uh, they definitely lagged behind the British when it came to some of those things. Uh, as far as the tactical skills of the forces involved, um, well, to be honest with you, at the start of the conflict, uh, you know, a significant part of the Italian nation uh, was ambivalent towards the war. And that ambivalence definitely seeps into their military. And um, I, th I think it's fair to say that the Italians aren't as motivated, uh, <laughs> you know, in the conduct of the war as, say, the British or other people are. In engaging in the conflict and that will definitely come through now of the three italian services i think it's generally recognized that the navy performs the best but even that 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 level of ambivalence will definitely come into play as far as that's concerned as well and then i think the third thing that's really kind of um, uh, uh, holding the italians back is again there's this lack of overall strategy is you know what are they actually trying to accomplish other than the fact that they okay we're in war because we think the germans are going to beat the british now what do we want to actually do and that kind of, they, they actually kind of adapt a defensive mindset, which doesn't serve them well. As far as the Air Force is concerned, again, it's kind of a, a similar thing. They have some good aircraft, um, but uh, again, they lack in some of the higher level technologies, uh, navigation, uh, radio, uh, you know, bomb sites. And um, again, um, not having uh, an, an internal naval air arm to the extent the British do with their one carrier, uh, that will also be a, some of an impediment to the, uh, the Italians, because as often is the case, cooperation between the different services isn't, isn't ideal. And so um, even though the Italians have the 1,700 aircraft that are in the Mediterranean area um, and, and large numbers of aircraft that will be employed uh, you know, to uh, participate in this naval contest, they won't be used as effectively as you think they might have been uh, for, again, some of their technical uh, uh, lack of technology that some of them have, and also just the lack of coordination that takes place between the services. So one of the things is you're, you're talking there, 
Um, I think about the submarines, the U-boats. It would it would seem that they could be pivotable. Pivot. I can't speak. Pivotal. In 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 a, in a close confines, you can't run a lot of spots. Um, and you said the Italians had more subs. Um, were their subs not effective? Did they not use them well again? Or what's because I'm thinking, man, if you it, 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 and I want to couple that with this question, which is how well did all the parties at play understand the terrain of the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean, the the, the little islands, the depths, the, 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 all that kind of stuff. So was that a factor? Yeah, well, I think that uh, again, the Italians arguably have the largest submarine fleet in the world at the, in June in June 1940. Now, theoretically, the, the Soviet Union actually might have had a larger submarine force, but um, I think a lot of the Soviet submarines were little, very little, small, you know, mini submarine types. Um, so, regardless, the Italians have a, a very large submarine force. Obviously, you know, it's it's substantially larger than the British submarine force in the Mediterranean. It's larger than the German U-boat force. Uh, again, Italian submarines, though, aren't generally tend not to be as good as their their German counterparts. Uh, they tend to be a little more ungainly. Uh, it, it'll take two or three times longer for an Italian submarine typically to like dive than it would, would a German U-boat. Um, the, Germ- the Italians won't use their, their, their submarines as aggressively as, as the, uh, the Germans do. They don't, they don't necessarily, you know, as the Germans are using wolf pack tactics and are aggressively, you know, hunting out allied convoys in the North Atlantic. Uh, the Italians are more inclined to basically just kind of wait and let targets come to them. Uh, and if if something happens they, they, to come to them, then they'll they'll engage it. But they're not necessarily actively seeking out these targets. Now, another thing you have to keep in mind again is um, most of the Italian submarines, of course, are located in the Mediterranean. Now, as I mentioned earlier, they have they have this naval base in Masawa in Ethiopia, and the Italians have eight submarines that are located there. And the the reason I'm bringing this up is that most of the Allied traffic that's going to be the, the Italian, in, in fairness, the Italian submarine fleet, it doesn't have a lot of targets they're going to be able to engage in the Mediterranean because by and large, the British are, again, they're not trying to sail convoys through the central Mediterranean. Right. What they're trying to do is sail the convoys around Africa. And the, the Italians only have eight submarines in position to be able to engage that target. Um, so they don't necessarily have a plethora of, 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 of you know, easy targets to engage. Um, the gist of this is, is that within but- the first... They would if they use uh, the choke point over there. Yeah, if, if, if obviously if they're able to to, to, to seize the, uh, the the Mediterranean, uh, seize the, the the Suez Canal, well, then that solves a, a number of different problems for them because they control the Suez Canal. They basically cut the British forces off, you know, from from any uh, real hope of of, of support. Um, but the gist of this is is within the first three weeks of, of the fighting, the Italians will lose eight, uh, ten submarines. Uh, four of those are lost in the Red Sea. And the other six are lost in the Mediterranean. Uh, in turn, the uh, Italian submarines will be able to sink. Uh, let's see. Um, they're able to sink uh, one a British light cruiser, a destroyer, a sloop, and three merchant ships. So essentially, the, the Italians sink six British ships for loss of 10 submarines. That's considered an intolerable exchange rate. And from this point on, they will ba- basically eventually withdraw their, their submarine forces from the Red Sea, the, the four surviving boats. Will, will withdraw from there, basically traveling around Africa to get back to the Mediterranean. And uh, the Italian submarine fleet will actually become somewhat of a non-factor for, for most of the Mediterranean contest after this. Uh, now, it'll still be there, but it'll be really generally ineffective to the extent that they'll sink, sink a few more 
British ships during the course of the fighting, but not that many. And in turn, uh, the Italians were considered to suffer some submarine losses uh, to the extent that I think by the time it's just all over, I think total Italian submarine losses in the, in the, uh, in the Mediterranean Red Sea area amount to about uh, some 64, 65 submarines somewhere in there. Um, in fairness, though, one thing that the Italians do do is, is they do send submarines to, you know, through the Strait of Gibraltar to operate from the French Atlantic ports that are under German control. And the Italians will participate in the Battle of the Atlantic. Um, and um, they will be far more successful. Their, 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 their Atlantic-based submarines will be far more successful than their submarines engaging in the Mediterranean. So, but... In fairness, those Italian submarines still aren't as successful as the German U-boats are. Um, so they, they gained more success in the Atlantic. In the Mediterranean conflict, the Italian submarine force really, even though it, it makes up about 45% of the initial uh, Italian Navy, really doesn't have that big of an impact in the fighting in the Mediterranean. And it'll generally be kind of a non-factor for the bulk of the fighting there. Okay. Um, Just two more questions on the Italian. Sure, absolutely. One, one, I'm reminded of... Um, Band of Brothers at the end of the last or next last episode, all the Germans are marching through town and the, the easy companies right on the back of uh, the trucks and private Webster gets up, goes, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? You imbeciles. What were you thinking? And as you talk about this Italian incompetence here, that that's, that's the thought, like, what were they thinking? <laughs> because every time I'm like, okay, well, here's a good idea. It's like, no, 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 they couldn't, they couldn't do that. No, 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 they didn't get that. It's like, I mean, when you said this earlier, do you think from the Italian standpoint, they just kind of thought, hey, the Germans are going to roll through and we're just going to ride shotgun and we're going to, you know, to the victor goes the spools. And I mean, because it like every time I'm like, OK, well, surely. No, no, I, it's 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 mind boggling. Well, I'm going to butcher this quote, but there's one point where Mussolini says, well, first of all, let me point out his his, his generals advised against going to war. But Mussolini wants to bring the, the, the Italy into the conflict because, again, he believes at the time I mean, France is clearly collapsing. And he, and he assumes right. that the, Britain will follow suit shortly. And he makes this statement like, I, I just need 10,000 casualties to have a place at the negotiating table or something on that order. And that was kind of the mentality. They, they come into the war because they think it's the right time to do so, but they have no real strategy then to prosecute it. And I'll give you a classic example of, of something that uh, it, it's almost criminal that the, the Italians didn't take advantage of. Um, you know, we talked about the central Mediterranean being, you know, the Italian sphere of, of, of real dominance. But there's this fly in the ointment called Malta, which is this little enclave of British territory that's located in an area that's otherwise dominated by the Italians. It's, it's this little island that's hardly noticeable on a map. Um, now, at the beginning of the war, Malta is practically defenseless, and it has no offensive capabilities. And if the Italians had operated and invaded Malta at this time, it, it would have assuredly fallen. All right. Um, even if the Italians aren't ready to launch an invasion, you know, on, on, on the 10th of June, 1940, you should be able to get some forces together and, and throw a plan together. So let's say by by July or August, you're launching an invasion and Malta is still generally wide open. They don't do this. And what they do is the British uh, decide that it, 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 basically a very kind of a ballsy call that they do. But they decide that, you know, we're going to we're going to not only hold and sustain Malta, but we're going to build it up and be able to use this as an offensive base. Now, it's, it takes about, you know, sub, uh, you know, a great investment of, of resources to be able to do this. Um, and um, 
eventually the British are able to do this though. And then what this becomes is Malta becomes a thorn in, you know, Rommel's, uh, have to go a few hundred miles you know across the Mediterranean to support their forces in Libya but they've got Malta there and and the, the British are sending out aircraft and submarines and at times surface ships operating from Malta and 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 attacking these lines of communication this could have all been avoided if the Italians had, had operated against Malta at the very beginning of the conflict and they don't do this and it, it, it it's it it seems to me that you know, Italian leadership was constantly always looking at some of the structural issues and qualitative issues that we talked about earlier and looking for reasons why they couldn't act. The British, who are outnumbered, also have structural and qualitative issues, but they look at those as things, okay, what are we going to do to overcome this so that we can get at the enemy? The Italians let their structural issues paralyze them. The British see them as, as obstacles that have to be overcome. And as a result of this, the Italians lose out different opportunities. They should have taken Malta. They should have more aggressively pushed into Egypt and captured the Suez Canal. They don't do these things. Um, and uh, they will eventually launch an invasion into Egypt uh, starting in September 1940, but they only advance 60 miles and then they stop to build up their forces. So they could have, could have and should have moved more aggressively and they just don't do this. And of course, this will pay them, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll pay, you know, great, uh, cost for this um very very soon because the british will quickly turn the tables on them yeah and, and real quick one one final question again on the italians is did i understand you say that they actually had better success in the atlantic than they did the mediterranean mm-hmm. why is that well um part of the reason was is uh the, the italians were generally operating in the uh, central atlantic um and uh at the time when they were having a lot of their success uh, most of the focus was in the north atlantic so the italian submarines were generally oftentimes able to find targets that were unescorted or, or, or less protected in the central Mediterranean um, than what would be subsequent uh, be the case in, in some of like the North Atlantic area. Um, so that, that's that, that plus the fact, again, there were targets to engage because by and large, the British don't try and with one caveat, the British don't try and operate, you know, through the central Mediterranean. Uh, again, that they, they will sail convoys, you know, around the eastern Mediterranean, which, again, they kind of uh, uh, dominate. And, of course, the western Mediterranean. And, again, the Italians will kind of allow them to do this. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, they're not going to necessarily operate too much in the central Mediterranean. With the, with the uh, exception of, again, in order to build up and sustain Malta, you have to send convoys into the central Mediterranean. Um, so during the course of the first two and a half years, the British will send 35 convoys to support Malta. Um, and again, this is located, Malta is located like 60 miles south of Sicily. So this is right in Italy's backyard. And you would think that the Italians would have been able to shut this down. And of course, later when the Germans become involved, you know, the Italians and the Germans combined would be able to shut this down, but they don't. Um, and, and the British are remarkably successful at keeping, uh, keeping Malta supplied. Um, there is a period of time from, from uh, February through August, 1942, where it becomes very difficult. And that's where you have some of these, these renowned convoy battles, Operation Vigorous, Operation Harpoon, and, and most notably Operation Pedestal. But even during this difficult time, enough ships still get through to keep Malta going. And this is, but this, this, this period is the anomaly. Not every convoy going to Malta 
is Operation Pedestal. And, and most of the convoys actually get through, suffer no losses or very, very light losses. And again, this is a testimony to the prowess of the British performance, but it's also an indictment of the Germans and Italians that they, they're not able to shut this down. And so, again, there's not necessarily a plethora of targets in the Mediterranean for the Italians to engage, other than like these convoys that are traveling to Malta. And, and they're just not really able to effectively be able to do that. And the Germans thought, what about this? Well, the Germans really weren't focused in the Mediterranean to begin the contest. This was Italy's war. Um, and they only come in uh, because Italy ends up, uh, as I said, the British are able to turn the tables on the, Germ- uh, on the Italians relatively quickly. Um, and, and the Germans uh, realize that they need to come in to kind of save the situation. Uh, what, what happens is um, at the beginning of the conflict, there's going to be a number of, of, of um, well, again, the British are on the defensive. But the British plan to, to exercise a very offensive or aggressive defense, and they're going to seek out and attack the Italians anywhere they can. And this is true on land, sea, and in the air. Um, in terms of the sea, there are a number of, of minor engagements that take place uh, during which time uh, the British are able to, to sink a, a, a fair number of Italian ships for really no loss to themselves. Um, the same thing will, will take place um, on, on land where in the initial couple of months of the war, even though the British are heavily outnumbered, they're doing aggressive patrolling into Libya, setting up ambushes, raids, and those type of things to basically keep the Italians off kilter, and the same thing in the air. Um, so over a period of time, the British are, are inflicting you know, a, a degree of attrition against the Italian Navy for, for, for minimal losses to themselves. And then in November uh, 1940, uh, the British will launch... Um, Operation Judgment, which is a carrier air raid against the Italian naval base at Toronto. And during the course of this raid, which is carried out by the the British aircraft carrier HMS Illustrious, uh, they launched 21 swordfish torpedo bombers against uh, Toronto. So we're not talking a massive, you know, air raid like, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor. But with these 21 swordfish torpedo bombers, they're able to sink one Italian battleship and temporarily disable two more. And so now all of a sudden, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the battle lines, the competing forces, you know, the Italians have had the advantage. Now, all of a sudden, they've only got three battleships left and the British have, you know, four. So all of a sudden, you know, that, that is seen as a turning point that switches the initiative to the British side. Um, all, about, uh, about less than a month after this, um, again, as I've talk, I mentioned earlier, the, the Italians' 10th Army has advanced about 60 miles into Egypt and stopped. Uh, 10th Army contains about 10 divisions, about 150,000 men. Um, the, the British finally have gotten enough resources into the Mediterranean area where they think they're ready to take the offensive. Uh, the forces they have consist of two divisions. They have about 30,000 men. So the British are still outnumbered, you know, in this area, five to one. And they take the offensive. And they're able to uh, launch Operation Compass. And it's highly, highly... A uh, successful uh, series of battles that eventually basically drives the Italians out of um, out of Egypt. The British conquer Cyrenaica, which is the eastern part of Libya. In the process of this, they essentially destroy the Italian 10th Army, taking 130,000 prisoners in the process, and British casualties for this amount to about 5,000. So this is what's going on, and the, the Germans are seeing this. And then plus, in addition to this, the Italians have invaded Greece, uh, thinking that Greece was an easy picking and, and the Greeks are able to stop the uh, the Italians and actually drive them back into Albania. So 
the Germans see what's happening there and they have to send forces to, to basically restore the situation in the Mediterranean area. Um, initially, they'll send just the uh, Luftwaffe elements uh, that will immediately make their presence felt uh, in January of 1941 uh, when they will disable the uh, British aircraft carrier Illustrious, which had carried out the, the attack against Toronto. Um, and then the Luftwaffe, as I said, will be for the next two years of the war, the Luftwaffe will become the main antagonist to the British Royal Navy in the Mediterranean theater. They will also send a small force to Africa to bolster the Italians, which will become the German Africa Corps under Rommel. Now, in 1942, um, or excuse me, 1941, uh, the Africa Corps will only consist of three divisions. Um, so the bulk of the forces in Africa will still be Italian divisions. Uh, but the Germans under Rommel basically are the real key driving force that take over the, the, the fighting in North Africa. And for the remaining two years of this conflict, um, it'll be, um, the, again, the Germans really kind of driving this, even though the Italians still make up the bulk of the forces that are located there. So they get involved to rescue the Italians. Had, had, had they not gotten involved, in my mind, the British probably would have had the Italians wrapped up somewhere <laughs> by the middle of 1941. But, but when the Germans become involved, then the fighting becomes much more protracted. We think of the Germans as fighting wars on two fronts, but based upon the ineptitude of the Italians, you could almost say three fronts. Well, you know what? I actually do say that. In, in fact, you know, one of the things I always like to point out, and again, I'm looking now more, you know, as you look at the totality of the war, uh, you know, conventional wisdom says that when the, Brit when the Germans failed to subdue Britain in 1940 and then turned around to invade the Soviet Union in 1941, that, that, that condemned them to wage a two-front war. I would argue that the Germans actually had a wage of five front war. One of those was the Eastern front against the Russians. One of them was the Western front, the traditional second front. Once the allies became involved in Northwest Europe, the third was the Southern front, which uh, eventually involves all of the forces that are involved in the fighting in Africa. And even more so the, the fighting in Southern Europe that will take place once Italy is driven out of the war. Uh, the fourth front being the aerial front, which is primarily involved in the strategic bombing campaign of, the, of Germany and the, the amount of tremendous amount of resources Germans have to put into trying to contest that. And then the final front is the, the maritime front, which is primarily takes place in the, the Atlantic, where the Germans build up this huge navy that, again, people don't necessarily realize this, but the German navy by the end of the war had accumulated more than twice the number of principal warships as the Imperial Japanese Navy did during World War II. Now, most of these were U-boats, but this also includes 450 surface vessels. And this tremendous force is almost entirely employed against the Western Allies in the Atlantic. Um, so those are the five fronts, but definitely one of those fronts is the Southern Front. And the Germans will invest huge resources into this region. And this was an area that they really had no interest in being involved in up until the fact that the, you know, the Italians you know, uh, needed rescuing. And that's how the Germans become involved there. Yeah, I, I could see the, as you mentioned earlier, the, the Middle East and, and the oil that's at play and at stake there could be a, a thing that both sides are focused on. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to hear just how inept the Italians were. I, I didn't realize that. It's, 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 it's quite stunning. And, and, and it, oh, to be clear for listeners, because you guys say stuff like this in 2022, Thank goodness. Okay, I'm not. I'm not wishing the Italians would have won. I'm just simply saying, just diagnosing what happened. It's, it's, it's stunning. And you know, it it's one of those things when we. Um, I love having history guests on because you you learn all this stuff and you you get to think about this stuff and it goes to show that 
makes you wonder how many times throughout our history, human's history, where wars have been fought and people have latched on and people have died just because they wanted to be a part of the victor. They were afraid what might happen to them. And um, in this case, the Italians, I don't know what would have happened if they would have went the other way, but God, it's just, it's, it's stunning. So the Germans come in, you mentioned that, and, and so they come in and their air superiority is what really, what really shifts it is, is do, are they sending message to the Italians? Like when they get involved, like how did you fumble the bag this bad? Well, I don't know if they're necessarily uh, <laughs> doing that. Um, but again, even though the Italians still have the majority of forces in the Mediterranean area, the Germans basically take it over um, and, and really are the driving force there. Um, were they not cross training? Were the Italians not reaching out for help? Like, hey, show us how to do this better. To, to some degree. I mean, maybe to some degree, but there isn't, uh, I, I don't think the, the, the Germans and Italians necessarily integrate as successfully as, say, the Allies do. Um, you know, when you consider that, you know, you know, the, you know, the, the, the breakdown of the, you know, the shape and the, you know, the, 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 the allied operations, not just in the Mediterranean, but like in Northwest Europe and so on and so forth. Um, you know, uh, generally, again, you have to realize that, uh, well, eventually the Germans will send U-boats into the, uh, the Mediterranean because things will become difficult again. Initially, when the Germans get involved, um, they, uh, they have some successes. And the British, you know, suffer some defeats. But then, of course, the British come back. And by the latter half of 1941, you know, British, the British position is on the ascendancy again. Um, and the Germans then feel compelled. By this time, the Germans have invaded the, the Soviet Union. And they're really focused on that. They pulled some of their air assets out of the Mediterranean area and just pretty much left the Italian Air Force now to, to carry the, the, uh, carry the water. Um, they, they, they have these three divisions in the Africa Corps that are helping support the forces in North Africa, but they make it clear to Rummel that that's all you're getting for right now, because again, the bulk of our effort is in against the Soviet Union. But then, you know, the British are able to rebound. And by the time you get into the, the, the fall of 1941, the Germans again have to send resources into the region to, to help out their, their, their Italian allies. In this case, they'll be U-boats and they will send U-boats to participate in this conflict. And then at the end of the year, the Luftwaffe will return in strength to the Mediterranean region to reassert itself into the conflict. Um, and eventually the more German forces will also be involved in the fighting in Africa. But, but initially you have this, this kind of a, a rebound. Um, but to a large extent, um, yeah, the, uh, the, how effectively the Germans and the Italians cooperate with each other. There is definitely some cooperation. There's no doubt about that. Among other things, the Germans provide the Italian Air Force aircraft. Uh, so not all of the aircraft the Italians are flying are Italian now, uh, but they will be fine like Stukas, uh, dive bombers and, and, and things like that. Also, some of those aircraft are actually Italians. So they do provide some things to them. Um, and of course, there's cooperation in, in, the, in the ground fighting as well, where, you know, Rommel's really commanding a mixed German Italian army where the Italians actually make up the majority of the forces. But a lot of times he has to intermix his German formations in with the Italians, because if he leaves the Italians on their own, they tend to screw it up. So he has to kind of intermix his German forces to, to kind of bolster them. Um, and, th- and that will be a common theme as well um, during uh, much of the fighting in North Africa. If you'd have asked me today, what I would have spent my time talking about, it's my fourth show to record. I don't think I'd have, I don't think I would have isolated pounding on the Italians for an hour, but we did that, you know, and, and it was fun. I have enjoyed it. And so Italians, it's your own fault, or it's their fault, whatever. It's you know, it's we're just trying to report the facts here. Okay, so 
give me the two questions I'd like to ask um, uh, people who write historical books is one, what was your biggest surprise that you learned in writing this book? And two, what's the one unanswered question that you would like to have answered? Okay. Well, I think, you know, one of the things I'll say, and obviously we're talking about a very broad topic. We spend most of our time more or less just looking at more or less the first year of the war. Um, and of course, this is a five-year campaign. So the way this thing eventually develops is eventually, the Allies will eventually win in North Africa. Uh, well, first of all, the British conquered Italian East Africa in 1941. And then the, the Allies will win in uh, all of North Africa. In the process of this, eventually the Allies will destroy, and I say Allies now because it's, it's still predominantly the British, but by this time the Americans have come into the conflict too. Um, and they will destroy a total of 40 Axis divisions in Africa, of which nine are German and 31 are Italian. About 950,000 Axis casualties are suffered during this, this time frame. And, um, you know, the, the, the material losses that the Axis suffer in, in, in Africa is, is immense. Allied casualties are about a quarter as high. So it's a major victory. The Allies now have destroyed all Axis forces in Africa. And then they immediately move into the second part of this campaign and they move into southern Europe. Again, primarily this will focus in, um, in, in Italy. And the last two years of the conflict will be fought in southern Europe. And you know, basically what happens in September 19, uh, 1943 is Italy leads the war. Um, they, they sign an armistice with the Allies and they leave the war. So they're no longer an Axis nation. But again, the, the, the Italians kind of botched this too, where the extent that at this time there are German forces in Italy uh, that, that defend Italy. And the Germans simply take over. And the Italians essentially let the Germans do this. So Italy just becomes another occupied country in Europe, like so much of other countries. And from the next last two years or last 20 months of the war, the Allies, of course, will land in Italy. And it'll be the Allies fighting the Germans in Italy for control of the Italian peninsula, with the Italians primarily be buying standards to what's going on in their own country. Um, but the gist of this is, is uh, to talk about, you know, surprise. I, I, one of the things, you know, that I learned is, you know, what was the benefit of the Allies to operate this entire campaign within the Mediterranean reason? Because, again, you have some people who have the mentality that, you know, the real key to victory in Europe was through Northwest Europe. Again, like the one guy said, the, the British should have just ignored the Italians and focused entirely on the Germans. And this was a sideshow. And my response to that is, and one of the things I've learned is that the Allies gain substantial, um, substantial strategic benefit from operating in the Mediterranean theater. Um, some of the benefits they had were the fact that, as we talked about before, this forced Germany another front in their war. And by the time you get in 1944 now, the Germans have 53 divisions located in Southern Europe. Uh, half of those are in Italy and the other half are in the Balkans and in Southern France, again, defending uh, this region primarily from the Western allies. So this becomes a major front in the war for them. Uh, that wouldn't have been other than that wouldn't have been the case had the Allies not operated in the theater. You know, another thing is again after 1943, the Allies are able to open up the Central Mediterranean, and this becomes a major transportation artery for supply ships traveling from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean and, and, and reverse. And there are two major beneficiaries of this. Number one is the British war effort against the Japanese, which is primarily headquartered out of India. But also another beneficiary of this is the Soviet Union, because a lot of those ships carrying supplies are carrying supplies to the Soviets, uh, either via, you know, the Persian Gulf or later in 1945, they'll actually go up through the Black Sea. 
Uh, so this is a major benefit that the allies gain. Another major benefit that the allies gain, which actually was somewhat surprising to me, is that this allows the allies to open up a, a second front in their aerial bombing campaign against the Germans to the extent that um, they're able to use airfields in Italy and the, the 15th Air Force and the British 205 group are able to launch a st the strategic bombing campaign, which allows the allies to hit a whole series of targets in Central and Eastern Europe that otherwise would have been accessible to the bombers operating out of the United Kingdom. And again, a, a major beneficiary of this is the Soviet Union, because the, the, uh, a lot of these targets they hit benefit the Soviet advance uh, that, that's coming out of uh, into Eastern Europe. And then the final thing I'll just throw out there, because as, as people talk about this, is, is the costs that were associated with this campaign. Um, eventually, the Germans will suffer about a million casualties uh, in, in this southern front area. Um, if you include Italian losses, it's about 4 million Axis casualties. That includes about 2 million Italians that leave the Axis order of battle when Italy capitulates in 1943. Um, the Italians in the, uh, the Axis will also suffer about 450 principal warship losses in the Mediterranean area. The cost that the Allies uh, attain in accomplishing this is about 650,000 ground, ground casualties over a five-year period and uh, about 180 principal warships that are lost in the Mediterranean area. So again, people will argue that this was a sideshow, but I would argue that the Allies actually gained very critical strategic benefits from operating in this area, and it really wasn't that costly. I mean, 650,000 casualties spread over five years, when you can consider that the uh, Allies lost almost 800,000 ground casualties in 11 months during the Northwest Europe campaign, and the 26 million casualties that the Soviet Union suffered in four years, the, the, the costs that the Allies sustained here aren't that great. So this is something that, you know, I, I was kind of familiar with these things, but as I really delved into it, it really became clear to what degree um, the, um, the uh, benefits were um, that uh, jumped out at me. You know, some of those things like, and, and how some of these things, like I said, not only benefited the Allies, but it benefited the Soviet war effort that was going on in, in, in Eastern Europe. Now, your other question was about uh, a, a question that goes unanswered. Yeah, something that you looked into, you go, I wish I would have known. Well, I mean, perhaps it's why were the Italians so incompetent? Maybe, <laughs> but you know, what were they thinking? So, yeah, well, I, I you know, I, yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of what I'm going to gravitate towards is, you know, why were the Italians so passive uh, when, again, they started this conflict? They're the ones who started the conflict. They're the ones that will benefit if they move aggressively, and they don't. They're very lethargic in the way they, they operate. And I don't know, you know, what was the, I guess the question would be, what was the Italian strategy? Um, and, you know, I, I, I think the strategy was, and, and I don't know that this was the official strategy, but I think the strategy was, we're going to let the Germans win the war for us yeah. uh, and, and we'll be you know, in the kill because they certainly didn't really exercise any kind of coherent strategy that would have benefited their cause. Um, so, you know, I think that's maybe the question I would just look into is, 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 is formally, what were the Italian, what Italians proposing to do and why didn't they do it? I guess would be uh, the, the question. Okay. Where do you want us to send people to? Obviously, we can link to the book, website, social media. Where do you want us to send people to? Um, I don't have a website, actually. Um, so, yeah, they can just look. Uh, 
you, you can just have them linked to it, like Amazon, uh, the, the, the book on Amazon. That's fine. Okay. We'll link to the book on Amazon. Any upcoming projects for us to keep our eyes out for? Well, sure. Sure. Um, you know, just, just to plug my other book, this is actually my second book. My first book is called The Longest Campaign, The Maritime Struggle in the Atlantic and Northwest Europe, uh, Britain's Maritime Struggle in the Atlantic and Northwest Europe, 1940-1945, excuse me, 1939 to 1945. I butchered the title of my own book. <laughs> um, and, and that one's been out for a couple of years now. And I am actually working on a third book now, uh, which is tentatively titled um, something on the order of uh, Forgotten War, the epic uh, uh, Britain's epic struggle against Imperial Japan, 1941 to 1945. So my next book, of course, is going to look at the uh, the fighting that takes place in the uh, Indian Ocean and the Pacific area as it pertains to the the contributions made by Britain, the Empire, and the British Commonwealth uh, nations in that conflict. Awesome. Well, we look forward to checking that out when it comes out. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship, or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile. Hi, my name is Michel-Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca or anywhere you download your favorite podcasts. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny.